Welcome to Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Ben Stewart, and it was recorded on Sunday, February 20th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at podcast at faithbridge.org. And if you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for Faith Bridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ben. Well, hey, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome to Faith Bridge. It's awesome to be here. Let me just say before we jump into our text this morning uh, that I have known Pastor Ken for over two decades, which is crazy to say. That's longer than some of these worship leaders have been alive. And, uh, and yet, even after knowing him all that time, he still consistently has wisdom to offer me and guidance as I lead and I'm a pastor now. I constantly lean back on the inexhaustible resource of Ken Warline's grace and wisdom. So I just, before we jump in the text, want to say I'm grateful for Ken today. You have a wonderful pastor, Faith Bridge, by the way. Yeah. All right. If you've got a copy of your scriptures, we are in Luke chapter 5. If you don't have one, raise a hand. There's some Bibles running around here. But uh, Luke chapter 5, let me just tell you what we're about to do. We're about to read... Maybe more scripture at once than some of you are accustomed to. It might verge on uncomfortable, but let me tell you why. Uh, This section of Luke is um, not chronological. Luke assembled this, this series of moments in Jesus' life thematically. They're meant to be read together. And so we'll look through these and then uh, we'll get them loaded in our minds so we can summarize as we preach. But see if you can spot maybe what you think the theme is as we do this. So Luke chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 12. And it says this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing On a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before him and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. 
And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, well, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? The day will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Let's skip to chapter six, verse one. And on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. And some of the Pharisees says, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful, but any of the priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Last moment. And on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Save life or destroy it. And after looking around to them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thank you for a few minutes around your word. I pray you would help us now as we look at it understand who you are and what you're doing. And Lord, I pray it would help us understand ourselves better as well. So give us the grace to see Jesus. And as we do that, Lord, I pray we'd be changed. And I want to ask you, church, if you're up for it, for you to take a minute and you just ask him, say, Lord, please teach me this morning. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's fascinating. You know, I wrote this book, Rest in War, that just came out recently. And so I've been traveling around speaking about this book in a lot of places. Uh, But then when Ken asked me to come here, he said, hey, would you be willing to jump into this series on Luke? And I said, yes. I said, I love talking about Rest in War, but it's so nice for me right now to just pivot and talk about Jesus. I said, yes, I will do that. This is fun for me. And it's been fun for another reason. It's helped me reminisce about what God did in the launching of Passion City Church DC, where I pastor. As I've traveled around speaking places, people ask that all the time. They're like, what's it like pastoring a church in DC? Are people just hard there? Do they just hate God? Like what is happening? And I tell them, man, the church is exploding. That even in the midst of the difficulties of the pandemic, more and more people are coming to Christ, more and more people are coming to church, and it surprises people. And when they ask why, they, they tend to ask technique. Why? Is it the lights? Is it the smoke? Is it the worship? What is it? And I'm like, you know, there's not a technique. The person of Jesus is compelling. 
And it's in the early days of church, you know, we do have great worship. We do have a great gathering, the way we organize it. But when we launched the church, it didn't start with music. It didn't start with a performance. It started in these buildings we would rent and put people around tables to sit in circles. And we would read chunks of the gospel like I just did and then discuss them and then invite people to talk about it. And it was wild. Hardened politicians and and people like that would come up crying. And they would come up and not know how to say their life was changing. They'd say things like, I'm bringing my friends to this. I can't believe we just did this. I need to tell my mom about this. I had five different people say that. I'm telling my mother. And I'm like, okay, wow. Uh, It's like they wanted to introduce Jesus to the parents. You're like, this is a big relational step. Are we ready for this? But, But there's something about the person of Jesus that continues to be compelling around the globe. A third of human beings on the planet claim some kind of allegiance to him. And you see it everywhere from fashion to finance to politicians to pop stars. Everybody is interested in Jesus. And yet it's fascinating. As much as there is interest about Jesus, it's wild to see how few people really know much about what he did or what he said. And I was that way, just full confession. I was a believer in Jesus from the time I was a kid. But when I first began to preach, I would avoid the gospels because when I read it, Jesus would confuse me and kind of scare me. And some of us, if we're honest, that's you. So what do you do? You just skip to the verses you're more comfortable with. Well, I like this Jesus that said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength to run marathons and stuff like that, lose weight. I like that Jesus. And and we tend to sort of grab the verses we get And as we do that, we we tend to, without trying to, assemble a Jesus that conveniently fits our lifestyle. And so whatever your lifestyle happens to be, he just sort of tends to conform to you. He's the more conservative Jesus, the more liberal Jesus, or whatever he becomes. He just sort of affirms your preferences, helps your desires, and doesn't really challenge you as a human being. Because at the end of the day, he just sort of starts to look like you. And what happens is if we construct a Jesus that fits our box... That Jesus can't transform us because he can't challenge us. And yet what we need is not a make-believe Jesus. We need the real one, the one who will challenge us, the one who can step into our lives and say things that change us, not him. But it's interesting, the, the impulse to put Jesus in a box is not modern, it's not new. And so where we are now is we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's beginning to preach and starting to heal, and his ministry is going to blow up. And particularly when he heals a leper, suddenly great crowds come. You ever want to gather a great crowd, heal a leper. Jesus' ministry blows up. And yet as it does, notice what happens. People are starting to try to figure out where to put him. And you're going to see a massive group of people go, hey, he's the healer guy. He comes to... to to my presenting problem, and he solves it. And so that's what he is. There's no challenge to my life, no no push for me to change. He just comes to solve my problem. I come to him because he comforts me, and they kind of want the healing helper Jesus. And yet we're going to watch Jesus resist that box. He's pro-healing, but he has something to say. He wants to challenge you. And then we're going to see as he gets popular, the religious leaders begin to come. And as they come, they want to make sure that Jesus is conforming to their legal standards of what a religious ruler should do. And we're going to watch Jesus define himself in opposition to them, that Jesus won't fit in that box either. And so it's fascinating. The impulse that we often feel is the same back then. People want to put Jesus in a convenient box. But what we're going to see here is Jesus inconveniently gets out of all of our boxes. But the good news about that is if we can see Jesus for who he really is, it has the possibility to change who we are. And that's what we desperately need. 
So with whatever time we have left, we'll just sit here and look at Jesus for a while, shall we? This will be fun. All right, so Luke chapter five, beginning in verse 12, it says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Leprosy was, was kind of a, a broad brush term to talk about a, a variety of skin diseases and things like that, uh, but they were diseases they didn't have a cure for. So if you had it, we had to quarantine you away from society. And because there was no cure, we quarantined you indefinitely. And so when you had something like leprosy, there was the physical pain, but maybe even greater than that is the emotional and social pain of being ostracized. And that's where this man is. And notice the man didn't just have leprosy. He's full of leprosy, really unclean and really isolated. And yet it says he sees Jesus and he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What's fascinating about that is he, he, he initiates this interaction and he acknowledges you have the power to cleanse. But the way he asks the question includes some uncertainty. I know you are able. I am uncertain if you're willing to be near someone like me. And I love Jesus' statement. It says Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Back then, if you touched someone with a disease, you became unclean, right? And yet Jesus reverses it. Uh, I remember when I, the church I was a kid at growing up, there was a children's church beforehand. I don't know if you ever did this, where they'd call all the kids to the front of the stage, and we would always have an elder come and lead the children's church. And I'll never forget, we had one elder come who was, frankly, a quirky guy. And he got up there to lead the moment, and he just doesn't pull out his Bible. He pulls out a jar filled with mud, and he pulls out a clean white sock. And he put the sock on his hand and dipped it in the mud, and then looked at the kids and said, what happened? And they were like, the sock's dirty. And he goes, why did the sock get dirtier and the dirt not get sockier? <laughs> and then he said, ask your parents. And that was it. And he walked off like that guy, first and last children's church he ever did. But I think what he was trying to say, which is a principle, you, you sort of hang around with morally reprobate people. It's going to rub off on you. Bad company corrupts good character, that sort of thing. And yet back then they said, hey, and if you're physically or ceremonially or emotionally or physically unclean, we all have to get away from you. But what Jesus does is he, he flips it. The dirt gets sockier. Jesus says, no. You don't make me unclean. I make you clean. And then he tells him to fulfill the law. Now, go to the priests and show them uh, that you're clean. The, the priests had no power to heal, but according to the law in the Old Testament, they were the people who could identify that someone had been cleansed. So if your disease did somehow leave, they would help identify and welcome you back into the community, that the social ostracization would end. And so Jesus says to him, go show the priests to fulfill all righteousness, obey the law, and to show them. But even in saying that, you notice the religious leaders can identify that God's working, but they don't have the power to release it. This man can move towards dirty people and make you clean. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody about this. And then he tells everybody about this. And you go, why did Jesus say that? Well, the text will summarize this part, but, but it gets to the point where Jesus, it says a great crowd start coming to him for healing. Mark tells us that, that, that Jesus couldn't even enter a city anymore. And so he's always having to move out into the wilderness. It gets real complicated because he suddenly gets famous. And a lot of people are barging in the doors to get healed. But as he does that, it also attracts the religious leadership. There's someone releasing that kind of power. We need to know who he is. 
And so this healing of the leper kickstarts an evaluation of Jesus. And that's what we saw in verse 17. It says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Pharisees was a very strict religious sect that had appointed themselves as the right interpreters of the law of God. So they show up to make sure, okay, this guy claims to have power. Let's make sure he's conforming to our religious rules. And so they're coming to evaluate Jesus. Jesus is used to crowds. Jesus is used to healing. But now you get this impulse of these people now evaluating him. He's a healer and he's a restorer. But Jesus wants to present himself as more than that. And so he does something interesting. These guys are trying to get their buddy in. They can't because of the great crowds. So they go on the roof, rip it open and lower their buddy like you do. And often we kind of stop there. But that's really not the point of the sermon. That's really not the point of this moment in Jesus' life. They lower the guy down, and Jesus sees their faith, and then Jesus does something weird. Obviously, they want him to heal their paralyzed friend, and he doesn't do it. He's pro-healing. He's going to heal him. But Jesus grabs this moment, this new dynamic with the religious leaders in the back, and he looks at this guy and offers him the thing he's not asking for. Man, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. That's not really what he's here for. But Jesus isn't just a healer. He's trying to make a point. I'm more than just the person who can solve your presenting issues. And some of us, we're here in church because we've got presenting problems. I got to deal with my anxiety. I got to deal with my stress. This relationship's in shambles. He cares about that. But he wants to do a deeper healing than just our presenting issue. So man, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. And as soon as he does that, he's doing it for the religious leaders to get their attention. And he gets it in verse 21. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They say, whoa, who talks like that? Which is a good question. Who talks like that? Like if you two were in a fight and you're arguing, and let's say it's getting ugly. If I walked up and said, whoa, 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 whoa. I forgive you. You'd be like, what? Like you're not even a part of this. And if I was like, shh, shh, shh. And all that you've ever done, I absolve you. You'd be like, who do you think you are? You're not the God who's been offended by our transgressions, and you're not the party that I've hurt. And yet Jesus comes up and takes the prerogative to say, all the wrong you've done and all its attendant shame, I take it away now. And they say, who talks like that? You can't talk like that. Only God can talk like that. And as soon as he does that, Jesus has their attention. He perceives their thoughts, and he says, why do you question your thoughts? And then he asks them a question in verse 23, which is easier. To say, your sins are forgiven, arise and walk. It's a good question. Which is easier? Which is easier? Yeah, the Pharisees don't answer it either. Y'all are like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) The answer is, it depends. Because on one side, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no way to verify it. You can just say it, and it may or may not be true. To say, rise up and walk to a paralyzed person is harder because we're all going to know in about five seconds if you have the juice to pull that off. But only God can really forgive sins. So that's infinitely harder. And so Jesus presents this problem, which is easier to do, to forgive him or to heal him. And Jesus resolves by sticking them together. Verse 24 so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who's paralyzed, I say to you, rise. 
pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before him, picked up what he'd been laying on and went home, glorifying God in amazement, seized them all. And they glorified God filled with awe saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. Jesus says, so that you know that I have the authority to do the thing you can't see. Let me show you the thing I, you can see. Get up and walk. And so he heals the man's presenting issue. And there's so many presenting issues in here. Jesus can substantially heal in your life. But Jesus doesn't want to end it there. Well, let me heal this paralyzed guy. Anybody else? Jesus says, no, I need you to understand there's something deeper going on here. I'm not just the healer of your problems. I'm the forgiver of your sin. I'm not here to just solve some of the issues that are bothering you. I'm here to do the deeper work you're not let asking for. That you're dirty, not just out here, but in here. And what you need is forgiveness. And I have the power to give you that. I'm the healer, and I'm the forgiver. Then he walks out the room. In verse 27, you get the next conflict with the authorities, and his conflict is not about what he claims. It's about the company he seeks. That you see that this man has power from God, and now this man's claiming God-like prerogatives. But then he leaves, and it says he went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he says to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, these verses used to bother me as a kid, because I'm like, that's fake. Like, who really does that? Follow me. Okay. And just leaves everything and follows him. I'm like, that's not what real people do. But I didn't understand the context. That in the Old Testament, God had chosen his people, the Jewish people, and said, I want you to walk with me according to my law, and you'll be a picture to the world of what it's like for a human being to know God. But he says, but if you persist in disobedience, I can't bless you. And if you continue in disobedience, I will judge you, and I will let Gentiles, people that don't know me, rule over you. And that's where the Old Testament ended. The people of God persisted in disobedience and they got under the leadership of Gentile leaders. So not only are they oppressed, they're oppressed because they knew they were guilty. It's a shameful thing to have these Gentiles rule over us. So imagine having a Roman power ruling over the people of God, and then one of your people decides to go to work for them, the oppressor. And not just go to work for them, but to collect taxes from you for them. And then Rome didn't set a wage for tax collectors. They gave them the right to choose the percentage they wanted to extract from people to line their pockets. And they would always pick a big percentage so that they could live lavishly. So they often were one of the most wealthy people in towns. Levi's going to throw a great feast later. And so these people are exploiting you for the sake of the oppressor, their own people. And so you don't have any power to change that except one thing. You can hate him. And you can make sure he knows you hate him. Someone who ex would exploit the political system against you for their gain. So get in your mind the political operative you hate. Go ahead and do it. Taste the bile. <laughs> Jesus walks out of the synagogue and sees that guy sitting in his tax booth alone. And Jesus says, you, I want you. Nobody does that. Nobody says that. And Levi gets it. <laughs> I'm the last person that should be in your orbit. I'm the dude that feels like he would burst into flames if I walked into that synagogue. You people don't want me here. Yeah, but I do. And Levi's like, well, then I'm coming. And I'm throwing a party that the people furthest away can be brought near because of this man. I'm in. And the religious people don't like it. It's, it's fun because they use an automata 
Pia in Greek for grumbling. It's ongongutsong because it sounds like grumbling. They're like, ongongutsong. They're out there like, come on. God hasn't done anything to deserve this. And that's the point. Jesus says, no, I'm a physician. I came for sick people. What I love about that is Jesus resists the religious impulse to say, I do good things to get accepted by God. Because that's what the Pharisees were, were suggesting. You have to do things for God to smile on you. He hasn't done the work yet. And Jesus says, no, the power of God cleanses you first. It changes you from the inside out. So he resists that religious impulse. But he doesn't just throw in with the sinners. He's not like, y'all need to relax. Tap another keg, Levi, and go nuts. He says, no, I'm here for these sick, reprobate sinners. And they're like, yeah, wait, what? Like, yeah, you're sick. Like, I'm not affirming your choices, but I love you. And I've come to change you. I love you right where you are. And I love you too much to let you stay there. So Jesus says, I'm coming to heal you. Not just physically, externally, but I'm here to heal you spiritually. I'm a healer. I'm a forgiver. I'm a restorer. That's who I am. That's who he is. And he says, I've come to call them to repentance. And Luke loves that word. He uses it a lot. What does repent mean? It means I'm living a life that is a dead end and has no answers. And God has convinced me that I'm sick. And so I have to go to a physician, someone outside me to heal me. That's, that's the presentation Jesus offers when he uses that metaphor. You have to acknowledge there's a sickness in me spiritually I can't heal. There's no vitamin, there's no pill, there's no read these books and do these things and these five steps and these New Year's resolutions that are all gone by now in a distant memory. None of those are gonna fix what's really broken. He says, you have to acknowledge I'm in need and come to the one outside of me who has the power to heal you from the inside out. Jesus says, that's who I am. I am the authority to make you well, but you must come humbly to me. And he keeps going because they're not happy with some of his choices. And they look at them and say, the disciples of John fast often and pray. So do the disciples of Pharisees, but you eat and drink. They start asking him about his fasting choice. Fasting is a good discipline for believers to engage in. I'm gonna go without food so that I can focus on prayer. And they're asking Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? John the Baptist do, Pharisees do. How come yours don't? And Jesus does something interesting here. Jesus, again, grabs a different metaphor. And he says, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom's with him? He says, do you fast during a wedding? He says, the day will come where the bridegroom will be taken away. They'll fast in those days. So it's interesting. He says, my guys will fast later. But what's interesting in that is how does he present himself? Not just as the physician, I'm the groom. He says, these are special days. This is a wedding. Fasting will go in later when I'm removed, which is him just alluding to his crucifixion. But he says to them, you know why they're not fasting now? Because the groom's here. It's the wedding day. And here's what's crazy about that. In the Old Testament, there is a groom the people of Israel were waiting for that's all through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. It's Isaiah 54. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The one who will love and restore and make a covenant to love his people is Yahweh, the Lord. And so when they're asking him, how come you guys don't fast? Jesus doesn't say, well, they'll fast later. Jesus says, you know why they're not? Because I'm the groom. I'm the one you've been waiting for as a nation and as a people. I'm the one who's gonna covenant with you and love you. He takes a divine name. 
He says, I'm more than just the one who can cleanse your sin away. I'm the one who can knit you together in loving relationship with God again. I'm the groom. That's a bold, controversial thing to say to folks like that. And so then they're like, dude, I don't like this guy. We were trying to figure out his healing. Suddenly he's like, well, I'm the forgiver of sins. I'm the bridegroom of the people. Like, who do you think you are? Now they're following him. And so they come up with him in chapter six on the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath, disciples are walking to the fields and they're grabbing grain heads and eating them. And the Pharisees say, hey, that's harvesting, which is illegal on the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't enter a technical debate. What he could have said was, well, technically that's not harvesting. If you look in the scriptures, well, you guys have interpreted it. He doesn't do that. Jesus pulls it back at a heart issue and goes, you guys have forgot what the Sabbath's about. The Sabbath was a day of rest for the restoring of people. You're trying to oppress people to hold to a religious standard. The reason the Sabbath was given was to restore people. So he gives a story about the showbread in the temple. Yeah, it was just for the priest, but when David and his men are starving, you give the bread to the priest. There's a higher principle at work here. Jesus kind of confronts their heart. Bolder choice. And you could have stopped there and won the argument. But he goes further. He says, you guys are missing it. The heart of God, the way he structured the Old Testament law all the way into today is to restore people's hearts. Oh yeah, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What? Who says that? The day of rest ordained by Yahweh? My idea. It's my day. Who do you think you are? And now they're mad. And so they follow him to the synagogue and he shows up there and there's a man with a withered hand there and Jesus calls him forward. Hey, stand up here. So what do you think is better to do? Good or evil on a Sabbath day? And he says evil because they were there to accuse him. And here this guy is crippled with his right hand. I mean, he can't work. His family might be starving to death. So Jesus says, what do you think is better to do? And they're in the back like, don't you, don't you do it. Don't. Jesus is like, healed. And they're like, that's it. That's it. And at the end, what does it say? They start conferring about how to destroy him is what Mark says. What Luke says is what they're going to do to Jesus. Because Jesus is doing something to them. He's confronting. Do you see that? To the person who just wants healing, he says, no, you have a deeper sickness. You're a sinner, and it's a sickness unto death. You need to repent. And to the religious person's like, yeah, tell them to clean up their life. He says, no, you've missed my heart. They don't clean up their life. I clean them. They need to come to me because I am the forgiver. I am the healer. I am the bridegroom. I am the Lord who brings rest. And as he puts his identity forward, he's challenging them and challenging us. C.S. Lewis said it. On one side, clear, definitive moral teaching. On the other, claims that if not true are those of a megalomaniac compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humblest of men. Jesus told people their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he was a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So shut him up as a fool, spit at him and kill him as a demon or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
So here as his ministry picks up steam, Jesus is forcing his people. There are only two responses to me, allegiance or rebellion. Follow me or rebel against me. That's your choice. And as we close, let me just be honest. A lot of us don't like talk like that. No one tells me what to do. I'm the captain of my own ship. Well, let me just say it. I don't have time to go into this. We all want authority. We do. Every one of us is looking for someone to follow. We search online. We search in the news. Bob Dylan saying it. You're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to serve somebody. And the more chaotic the world gets, the more we look to leaders to save us. And Jesus presents himself, I am the Lord. And before you resist that, let me just say, look at how he uses that power. How does he use it? He moves towards the outcast to make them clean. He moves towards the person who knows they're guilty and he takes sin and shame away. He moves towards the broken and he heals them. And he says, and I bring the joy of a wedding day. And I bring the rest you've been longing for. I'm the healer and restorer. And I'm the husband. And I'm your rest. You come to me to get out of that which is destroying you. And to step into the kingdom that brings you life. How can he offer that? Because he is who he says he is. He's the Lord. And because all that sickness yours and you and I possess... He took upon himself on that cross. The bridegroom did get taken away and he took our sin and shame with him. The reason I can heal you now is because I will absorb it later and I will let all the tragedies in your life bury me. And then when I rise victorious, I say, follow me. Repent of your old lifestyle. Some of us, we're so proud, we're so stuck, we're so addicted. And he says, walk away from it. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to acknowledge you're sick. But when you acknowledge that, I heal. I forgive. I bring joy like a wedding day. I bring the rest for your soul you've been longing for. Not with external rules, but with a heart change from the inside out. Because I'm the Lord of true rest. Do you know him? So Father, I thank you that you didn't send us a moral teacher. We need morality. But the stain is deeper than that. We need resurrection. We need a changed heart. We need Jesus. So thank you for a chance to just look at him because Paul told us that when we look you in the face, we become more like you. And some of us have been clinging to the broken promises of our sin, trying to find rest. And Jesus is saying, repent of all that. I'm not condemning you, but I'm the Lord of Sabbath who can bring you healing when you rest in me. Some of us, we've been clenching our teeth and our fists towards the other and we just watch Jesus move towards them because he doesn't want to condemn and destroy he wants to heal and convert and maybe this week when we see our enemy we can pray for them and ask God to do the impossible in them the same thing he did in us and Lord I pray for any listening to me that has never put their faith in Jesus that today might be the day they say if that's what he's doing then I'm leaving my tax booth I'm going with you. And friend, you can put your faith in Jesus today. And then please come and tell one of the staff here, let us know what God is doing in your life so we can celebrate and walk with you. And God, for those of us who know you, may we rest in your forgiveness, delight in your love, and may we walk with you 
morally pure, not to earn your approval, but because we have it and your promises are better than the fleeting promises of sin and full of grace because we know you're the physician that healed us when we were sick. So when we see sin sick people, we want to bring them to the physician who healed us and we'll rip open any roofs we have to to get them there. May we be agents of grace and change because we know and walk with you. And we pray that in the powerful name of Jesus. In Jesus' name.